you know, it's just another opportunity to remind people about the importance of diversification. So I'm not anti-stock market. I'm not saying everyone needs to pull their money out of the stock market or bond market and put it into commercial real estate. But if you don't have any exposure to commercial real estate, especially in a high inflationary environment, you're missing out on a lot of things without getting into tax benefits, without getting into appreciation, without getting into any of that you're just missing out and you probably need to kind of think about rebalancing and being better diversified uh, than maybe you are today. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today we have on Clive Davis. Clive is the founder of Park Royal Capital, a multifamily syndication group, but Clive is also a passive investor, a lawyer, an angel investor, and a diversity and inclusion champion. He left his high-paying corporate job as an attorney to go full-time into real estate, and we're here to talk to him about his transition. Clive, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. How you doing, man? I am fantastic. Well, Clive, we like to start off with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Heath Bar Crunch. So any ice cream that has Heath Bar Crunch in it is going to be a favorite of mine. So it could be any flavor, but it's got to have Heath Bar Crunch clustered in there. All right. If we're in Atlanta, where's the best place we can find a Heath Bar Crunch ice cream shop? And I'm assuming the street is going to start with Peachtree Street. Actually not. It's going to be probably... There's a couple places. Brewster's, I don't know if that's more of a national chain or whatever, but Brewster's is a popular spot. So I'll say Brewster's. Okay. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? What do I do today? So today, <laughs> we started to touch on this. I pay out uh, investor distributions to my investors who've invested in my deal. So that's one of the things that I've been focused on today. But bigger picture, I am focused on acquiring, owning, and operating large-scale multifamily communities. So on any given day, I'm underwriting, I'm talking to brokers, I'm touring, or I'm going to our own assets that we own here in Atlanta, and I'm doing something related to asset management, whether that's meeting with general contractors to talk about different projects at our properties, just generally checking up on interior unit renovations or other renovations happening around our properties, but just really focus full-time on multifamily real estate and our pursuit of assets there. And I touched on this, but we're transitioning now to my family. So still in the multifamily space, still the area of focus, but a different animal. And we can certainly talk about that some more. Perfect. Before we get there, where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah. So my real estate journey probably began around the age of 13 or 14. So we were actually in the UK. My mom transitioned to the US, to New York specifically in pursuit of the American dream. It was several years before we were able to follow her and kind of reunite the family. But when we got to the US, she had a home in Bradley Beach, New Jersey, which is the closest thing to a US home for me in a home state. And she also had a a rental property in Queens, New York that she had bought first and then ended up not living there. She rented it out and then headed to New Jersey. So on the weekends, I would drive up from New Jersey to Queens, New York to the rental property. And I'd be working on a variety of projects with my father from wallpaper in to painting to anything handyman related. And so that was my earliest exposure to this landlord tenant 
concept and kind of taking care of a property that you don't live in, but is yours. And so that was my first exposure and probably was the spark for my interest in, hey, there's this thing called rentals that you can do and people pay you money each month. So fast forward to my very first investment property was in 1999. So I was a couple of years out of law school and I was in New York City and I bought a duplex property down in Cape Coral, Florida. So this was the first real estate property that I acquired as an investment property, didn't live in it. And I self-managed it from New York. I didn't even contemplate the idea of turning it over to someone to manage for me. My parents were located in Cape Carl, so I had them that I could kind of turn to assist with any kind of things that were needed in terms of coordinating and things of that nature. So that was my very first investment property. And the idea behind that was my parents retired in 1996. So it was a perfect way for me to kind of subsidize their retirement. We come from a humble background. Neither of my parents had fancy kind of pensions and packages and retirement savings. So in many respects, their children were part of their retirement plan. And so in playing my role, it was important to me that, you know, they not want for anything and that anything that I could do, I play my position. And so I ended up getting that duplex. I set up a checking account. I put both my parents' names on it. I had the rents going into that checking and a checking account. And basically, I just told them, look, you don't need to ask me for anything. If something's broken, if the pool pump needs replacement or what, just access your checking account, get the funds that you need and, and take care of it. And I just wanted to empower them. They're retired. They're proud people. They don't necessarily want to be asking their baby of the family for anything that they needed. So it worked out perfectly. I was blessed to be a high paid corporate citizen. At the time, I was a corporate transactional lawyer uh, working at a Wall Street firm. So I wasn't relying on the, let's call it eight, nine, maybe a thousand in cash flow with the property was kicking off each month. So I was able to, to kind of just redirect that into that account. And it was a real resource for them. So that's my very first real estate investment. And that's really kind of what got me started and kind of built from there. Do you remember how you found that property? I do. So basically, I can't remember. She was with Century 21. But basically, I connected with or someone connected me with a real estate agent. And I basically reached out, said, this is what I'm looking for. This is kind of the price range. I think we ended up buying that. It was around 75000 at the time. And so this is back in yeah. 1999. 1999 numbers right there. It ended up being a long-term hold because I held it until 2018. And I want to say we sold it for like 230. I can't remember the numbers, but substantially more and not unsurprisingly, given the amount of time that I held it, but connected with an agent, she would send me some stuff. I'd look at it. And then, you know, when I got a hit, then that's when I kind of dove in a little deeper. And yeah, we went and picked it up. It was, you know, pretty effortless from my standpoint. So from the duplex where you had some family there, you knew the market a little bit and you had a plan for it. Where did you go from there? How'd you scale your portfolio from there? Yeah. So I actually had a long period of not adding anything to my portfolio, if you will, because, and I tell people, I wasn't really taking it seriously. Like I, I didn't go into it strategically with a plan that I'm going to start with two and then I'm going to add this and then I'm going to go to eight and 10. And that was never my plan. When I started getting serious about real estate and being more strategic about it, that's when I left corporate America. So just in terms of background, so 20 year corporate career, 
Started out transactional corporate attorney, Wall Street firm. I then transitioned to being in-house counsel for Pfizer. And Pfizer actually relocated us to Atlanta back in 2005. I then left them, went on to be a chief compliance officer for another pharma company. So all in all, a 20-year career. At the end of 2016 is when I said, 20 years has been a good run. If not now, when? And the question is, like I said, going back to the 13, 14-year-old kid, I'd always had an interest in real estate. Even when I went to law school, I didn't necessarily think I was going to practice traditionally. I had always just heard that with a law degree, there's so many things that you can do above and beyond just being a regular lawyer, whatever a regular lawyer is. There's so many types of lawyers that you can be. So basically, the question I was asking myself come the end of 2016 is, if not now, when are you going to combine your passion and interest in real estate with your flirtation with being an entrepreneur? It's at that point that I said, you know what? Now's the right time to take a leap of faith. Worst case scenario, I have a safety net of if this leap of faith doesn't work out, I can probably go find a pretty decent paying job and the family's going to be okay. The bills are going to be paid. We're going to eat. But I can't keep procrastinating and deferring this interest. And now's the time. And so I parted ways with corporate America and the W-2 with it and haven't looked back since. And so one of the very first things I did is I went and bought a five unit. So as you know, Matt, one to four units is residential, five units and above is commercial. And the importance of that for me, and I felt this firsthand was that, and I jokingly tell people, it's easier for me to go buy a 30, $40 million property than it is for me to go buy a single family. Because you know, the first question they ask you the lender now, they're going to say, we need two years of tax returns and pay stubs for the last 30 days. And if you tell them, I don't have a pay stub or I don't have a W-2, they're going to ask you the same question, mm -hmm. <laughs> just reformat it because it does not compute for them because they are used to 99% of the people coming in there are people who have a W-2 and can hand over pay stubs. So for me, I knew with a five unit or above, now we're talking commercial now the focus is on the property, on the asset and its ability to generate revenue and ultimately pay back the loan on the property. And then they look at you secondarily and say, you know, does he have any bankruptcies on his record? Is there anything that would be cause for concern? But they're not focused on my income. In fact, when I bought that five unit, I don't even think they asked me what my income was. I don't even think they asked me what I did for a living. They did their own analysis. I shared with them my analysis of what I was going to do, what the current rents were, what the rents would be after I renovated units. They did their own analysis, which was basically confirmatory of what I was telling them. And then they were prepared to make the loan. All I needed to do is to ensure that I had the down payment to show up at the closing table. So it's a big difference between playing in the commercial space and residential. And I didn't really appreciate that until I kind of left that W-2 behind and knew that I wanted to continue on this path. And so that was something that I experienced firsthand. Yeah, that's it. I want to take two things out of that. One, I'm in the process of buying a new home as well. And one of the things they look at is not only W-2s, but where's the money coming from, your other assets. And then obviously, since I have a single family portfolio that I still have, my DTI ratios look pretty funky. So they're like, wait a minute, where's all this debt coming from? You look horrible on a debt perspective and you 
Those people aren't going to understand the nature of the game. But when you get to five units and above, it's like you're buying a small business. So they're going to look at the asset itself and the business itself, not just your ability to pay it, but the asset's ability to pay it. One of the things I learned about you in some of my research is that you actually have done some crowdfunding investing as well. So up until the point of 2016, had you already done some crowdfunding investments? And can you talk us through that process? Yeah, so I had not done any crowdfunding or crowdsource deals, investments until early 2017. So, and the way that I found my way to that is I was, I attended some real estate conference. I don't even remember which one at this point, but I heard someone talking about self-directed IRAs, which I had not heard of as a term before. And so someone got up, they did a 30 minute spiel on self-directed IRAs. And I learned during that time that hey, if you've got kind of a legacy 401k that is sitting around somewhere, either it's with your old employer or you've kind of rolled that legacy 401k over to a generic Fidelity IRA or Ameriprise or whatever, if you've got money sitting around like that and you want to take greater control of your retirement funds, there's this thing called a self-directed IRA. And and an IRA is an IRA, but self-directed IRA is just kind of the nomenclature surrounding it. But the beauty of a self-directed IRA, and this would also apply to a solo 401k, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But the beauty of a self-directed IRA is that you, with the exception of like, I think there's two things you can't invest in. I think one is collectibles, and I forget what the second item is. Metals, I think. Yeah. Precious metals, I think. But outside of those two narrow limitations, you can invest in anything. And I think the guy on the stage gave the example of someone investing in a thoroughbred horse semen because he was a horse breeder. He put his retirement funds into a self-directed IRA and invested in that. That's unique to him and obviously, hopefully has specialized knowledge. But the point is, is that I was now in a position where for the many years before, I was always in the position where I maxed out my 401k. So the 19, 20, 21,000, whatever it was, I maxed that out. I maxed out employee contributions. But at the end of the day, I basically put it into one of the limited 10 buckets that my employer said I could put it into. And generally, the advisor would say 60% here, 30% here, and 10% here, and you just let it ride, and and you just forget about it for the most part. Maybe you open up the quarterly statements when the market's up. Maybe you don't open them when the market's down, but by and large, it's out of your control. Someone's making money off of your retirement, whether the market's up, down, or sideways. And so for me, it was very attractive as an opportunity to now, now that I'm W-2s behind me, corporate life's behind me, there's no excuse for me to be turning over the management of my retirement funds to someone else. So because I knew that I had this interest in commercial real estate, I said, well, why would I invest anywhere else but commercial real estate? And so that's when I found a crowdsource platform and started investing heavily. And I invested in probably nine or 10 deals uh, back to back. So by the end of 2017, I was in 10 crowdsource deals. Now these are institutional quality sponsors that are bringing opportunities to the platform. 
typically they're raising, you know, maybe they're raising 10, 15, 20 million over here. And then they come to the crowdsource platform and they raise an additional five, seven, maybe 10 million. So a portion of what they ultimately need for their equity. And so that's what I did. The beauty of me doing that is I invested in the types of deals that I envisioned myself doing in 18 months or two years from that point in time. So I got a firsthand look at how high level institutional quality sponsors with billions of dollars under management, what are their business plans, how they attract capital, how they present deals to investors, what does investor relations look like? What does asset management look like? So all of these things that were somewhat foreign to me or unknown, I got to see as a passive investor what that looked like. And so you get to see mostly, hopefully good, but you also get to see uh, some things that you don't want to replicate as a sponsor, communication being one of them. So I pride myself on being very transparent as a sponsor on my deals and putting out good communications and being accessible. And you don't always get that, especially with some of the bigger players where you become a number to them after you've wired your funds. And so there are learning lessons that you take away from being a passive investor that you can then inject into your own business and into your own sponsorship of deals. So there's two things I want to take out of kind of your statements there are one, a self-directed IRA is met for control. And I'm a big proponent on taking control of your financial independence, because when we think about a 7% average return in the stock market that every big brokerage firm, Wall Street will state, we don't think about the ups and downs. We think about, oh, it's seven steady eddy up and to the right, which I think that's what real estate gives you is consistent, steady cash flow and appreciation over time. We're at a time right now, it's September 2022, where the stock market is a bloodbath out there. And people don't think about if the stock market takes a dip of 50%, it has to gain 100% for it to get back to equal. So when you look at some of the wealthy people out there, Mitt Romney, Peter Thiel are two examples of people who have used their self-directed IRAs to go invest in areas where they have specialized knowledges, whether it's horses, thoroughbred semen, investing in cows, or in businesses. I think Peter Thiel wrote a $500,000 check to Facebook from his self-directed IRA and has now made billions off of that, right? So I would encourage people out there, if you want greater control, to look at the money you already have in these accounts and decide if you wanna take full control of those. But moving to the crowdfunding and the crowdsourcing deals that you have done, you mentioned communication, but has your experience mostly been good? Because this crowdsourcing websites are where I've learned about how huge the real estate market is. Because when you look at some of these asset managers and general partners on these sites, I mean, they are trillion dollars under assets and multi-billion dollars under assets, where the most I know is somebody that owns a couple thousand units sort of thing. So has it been a mostly good experience for you or what are some of the positives and negatives? Yeah. So I think the overwhelming, my overwhelming experience has been positive. I've seen several deals go full cycle now, including a few in Q4 of last year and Q1 of this year. The overwhelming experience has been positive. There have been some negatives. And one of the challenges that the platforms are dealing with is what do you do when a sponsor goes dark? And by goes dark, I mean, they become non-responsive to investors who are inquiring about K-1s, who are inquiring about progress with the development, in the case of the ground-up development, what's happening. 
And I've had some bad experience in terms of the platform effectively not being much help and you kind of finding yourself being on your own. And then it's a matter of do we as investors kind of find one another, kind of rally together and figure out what's our course of action to do in the face of this kind of darkness that we're, we're dealing with. So that's kind of a negative. Obviously, it's a different relationship that you have with that type of institutional sponsor than you have with, you know, if I'm doing a deal or if I'm investing in another person's deal, and I, I've done that recently where I have a personal relationship with the sponsor, they've either invested in my deals or they've partnered with me on my deals. And so if they're doing a deal, I'm almost betting on them as much as I am the actual deal and, and kind of specifics. And so now that I have the opportunity and I have those relationships that I've built over years, for the most part, the crowdsourced investments are likely behind me. That will be more of an outlier opportunity that I might seize upon opportunistically, as opposed to being the lion's share of what I do from a passive standpoint. Most of the deals that I'm in passively now, or I know the sponsor personally, I have a relationship. I can text them. I can call them. I can find them if I want to. And so it's just a different scenario. But when I was starting out new to this world, crowdsourcing gave me an, a point of entry that proved to be invaluable, both from an educational standpoint. And then, like I said, it was mostly a positive experience. And my retirement funds on balance are in a better place. I think they would have been had I left them in the market. I just posted, I think in the last several days, I put a post out on social media showing the decline of the Dow Jones over the last 12 months. And it went from around 34,000 to mid 29,000. So down plus or minus 16%. So if you had most of your retirement in the stock market over the last 12 months, you're down substantially. That's without even getting into inflation and or <laughs> any of that stuff. Thanks and for so, the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's just another opportunity to remind people about the importance of diversification. So I'm not anti-stock market. I'm not saying everyone needs to pull their money out of the stock market or bond market and put it into commercial real estate. But if you don't have any exposure to commercial real estate, especially in a high inflationary environment, you're missing out on a lot of things without getting into tax benefits, without getting into appreciation, without getting into any of that you're just missing out and you probably need to kind of think about rebalancing and being better diversified than maybe you are today. That's it. I like to say that real estate is a answer to your financial independence. It is not the answer. So while I still am heavily leaded towards commercial real estate specifically, I still have a good chunk of change that is getting murdered right now in the stock market as we speak. But you went from small single family duplex, fiveplex investor to passive investor in some of these crowdfunding websites to raising money for your own multifamily deals in the Atlanta area to now, I think we were chatting before the show that you're starting to get into development. Talk yeah. us through the transition from multifamily value add to now doing some development. Yeah, I think of it as an expansion of what I'm doing. So I tell people I'm not an overnight success because I didn't just say I want to do, I'm going to sponsor deals and then the deals land in my lap. It took me the better part of two years, including kind of a dormant period. The COVID was kind of playing with the market and messing a lot of things up. But nonetheless, it took me the better part of two years before from my very first offer that I submitted on a multifamily deal 
to get an awarded that first deal. We closed that first deal back in November of 21, 244 units. We acquired that for 30 million. Law of the first deal, the week that we closed on that first property, we got awarded the second one. And so after knocking on the door for this better part of two years and being a runners up or a bridesmaid, but never a bride, we finally get a deal. And then rapidly behind that, the same week, we get that second deal. So value add, that's the business model. I continue to pursue and I'm still interested very much so despite what's going on in acquiring more value add opportunities. I had always known that I was going to get into the development side of things. It was just a matter of when, not if. And so some opportunities have just come my way. And we we touched on this a little bit before we started recording, but we touched on the fact that I've been blessed to have the opportunity to be invited into several ground up construction of multifamily properties here and around Atlanta. And so it's a very different business model. But I think it's another form of diversification. And we were talking about diversification earlier. So not only am I focused on value add, but now I'm expanding my multifamily focus to ground up construction. Different business model, higher risk, but hopefully higher reward (laughs) if done correctly. And so right now I'm fine playing more of a junior role to a lead developer and learning the ropes along the way. And then ultimately taking that and getting to the point where I step into the shoes of of being a lead developer. But I'm thrilled with the opportunity. I've got some exciting opportunities that I'm involved in, and there'll be more information about that. Can you highlight some of the differences between value add acquisition and development? Because from my perspective, it's a longer game where you don't see the results until the end. So you have to just be consistent in your actions every day where a value add is more like, hey, I get a property today. There's some levers I can go pull. Let me go pull those. And it's a day in and day out grind of seeing your results. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think of value add, the timeline of value add. So from the time that I submit an offer to I close a deal, let's call it 90 days plus or minus. So there's an intense period of underwriting the deal, stress testing it, touring it, negotiations, getting a purchase and sale agreement signed, all of those things, lots of plates being juggled. And then you finally get to the closing table and kind of, okay, you you know, you climax, you close the deal. And now you transition to, okay, we own this thing. We got to manage the takeover. We got to implement our business plan. We've got to manage this asset. And so the timeline is much more predictable. You kind of know the phases, regardless of who you are as a sponsor, every sponsor is going to pretty much have to do the same things in terms of their value-add business plan. When it comes to the development side of things, the timeline is much longer. So whenever someone comes to me and says, are you interested in this development opportunity? Whatever they tell me the timeline is, I'm going to add six months to it. So if they come to me and they say, you know, it's going to be 12 to 18, in my mind, I'm like, okay, it's two years is the land already entitled or are we going to have to entitle it after we acquire the land, go through zoning and all of those things, or are we further along in the process? It's a longer timeline, hopefully with a a healthier payoff at the end of all of that. But you go into it, you know that it's going to be a cash drain. There is going to be no cash flow because it's going to be money paid out to all of the parties that need to be paid. 
from the architects to the surveyors to everyone that needs to be paid as part of that development process and as part of the development related costs. And that's before you've even broken ground. And then you break ground and then you've got to go through all of the challenges of construction and material costs and labor shortage and and all of the things that you potentially might deal with. And then hopefully at the end of two years, plus or minus, you've got a property that is completed and now it's about lease up. And so now we got to get occupants into these units. And then, you know, depending on what your business model is, are we going to keep it and cash flow it? or, Or do we have an exit plan that has us exit in? now that lease up has commenced. So depends on the business plan, but it's a all in all a much longer timeline with the payoff being much further out than value add, which is a little bit more immediate to you from the time of kind of pursuit. Yeah. And the first question I would ask any developer is, is it entitled? Before I even look at a development deal, I want to know that it's titled up because or zoned out properly because I think that's where some people can get stuck because that just feels like a backroom game to me. Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting about you was how you've built communities. And I like to say that commercial real estate is a team sport and you have to understand what role on the team you're going to play. And I think some of the lessons I've learned from you is that you can go build your own team or your own tribe and bring people into the fold. You don't have to just go out there and see what's already out there. Can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to build tribes and kind of share your messaging along the way? So first of all, it's a definitely a team sport. And so the best performing teams pull talent from wherever talent can be found. So I found that personally in terms of the teams that I've assembled to take down the deals that I've done, a couple of which I mentioned, but more broadly in terms of team and tribe and community. One of the things that I did is I attended a conference probably several years ago, probably back in 2018, and found myself in conversation with some fellow African-American investors who were in the audience. And we started up an email chain after that conference. And it was very cumbersome because we were sending emails and trying to communicate the six or seven of us. And someone in that group said, you know, we should start a platform or, or someone should start a platform where we can kind of have a community and and share information, encourage one another in this journey, share success stories. And so I kind of ran with that. And I started the African-American Multifamily Investor Network on Facebook. And so I've been very intentional about growing that group and not just trying to get to 5,000 or 10,000 for the sake of getting to a huge number. I've been very intentional about ensuring that the people who join the group really have an interest in multifamily. So we don't talk about wholesaling. We don't talk about flips. We don't talk about any of that. We try and confine the conversation to multifamily. And I probably like you, Matt, I'm a member of probably two dozen or three dozen multifamily related groups on social media. But this one is very niche. And the rationale and the thought process behind it was, is that African-Americans are underrepresented in commercial real estate. And I think the percentage is a measly plus or minus 2% of the roles within the broader commercial real estate world are occupied by African-Americans. So, you know, I think that same type of underrepresentation probably is found in the investor pool of folks who are investing in commercial real estate. And a lot of that is just lack of knowledge, lack of information, lack of role models, lack of visibility or proximity to people who are doing this. And so I just wanted to kind of cultivate and curate a, a space where 
folks could go and see people from all walks of life in all different roles, kind of under that commercial real estate umbrella, pursuing multifamily or facilitating multifamily in some way. And so we're now a group, we're up to about 1,300 members. If nothing else, we're kind of a cheerleader for folks to do deals and we're a resource or a facilitator, a connector within that community. And so I've really been happy with what we've been able to do and some of the success that people have gone on to do, the relationships and connections and networks that have been created. Because you know, Matt, network is everything, relationships are everything. And so sometimes all you need is an introduction to oh, you're in Baltimore, he's in Baltimore, you guys should chat. And so just simple things like that have proven to be very useful to the membership. And we continue to grow and welcome folks into the group that can add value in any way. That's awesome. And I think part of that too is distilling the lessons of what you've learned about generational wealth to people who might be in the wholesaling or the single family or the fix and flip and to saying, hey, let's use those profits for the generational wealth. And by the way, this is a whole nother segment of real estate where you can kind of get some of those long-term legacy passed down wealth. Yeah. And once you're talking to them about multifamily, you're really preaching the values of scale, right? So if you've got a flipper or, or someone who every 60 to 90 days, they're flipping a house and they're putting all their sweat equity into it and all of that. If you have a conversation with them about, you know, well, why don't you consider a 20 unit or a 32 unit, or you start to open their eyes, that's good. And that serves an immediate need. But if you really want to create generational wealth and, and leave a legacy, it's going to be very difficult doing that a flip at a time. And so you're opening up their kind of aperture to something that I tell people, and you know this, Matt, real estate is not rocket science. If you can do basic arithmetic and understand the concept of people need somewhere to live and someone needs to provide that. And if you're that person who's the provider of that, there's a market for that and there's a value that people put on that. And so I've done some things in my life that are way more complicated and way more sophisticated than what I'm doing today. Because I think, again, if you can do basic math and you have any degree of personality, you can do what it is that we're doing. And so someone that has the hustle and discipline to wholesale and to flip and to work hard, my conversation with them is take all of that and apply it to multifamily and you can achieve success at a much bigger scale and your impact will be bigger. The legacy that you're creating is going to be bigger and potentially more impactful. So that's generally the tone of conversation that I'm having with anyone who's in single family. I'm trying to get them up that ladder because I actually never invested in single family. My very first, as we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. investment was a duplex. So the only single families I ever invested in were the ones that were my personal residence. And then Maybe I left it and maybe I rented it out after I left, but there was never an intention of I'm going to go one family at a time. So I started with a duplex and I've only grown from the two to the five to the leap to 244 and 200. And, and you know, that's kind of the ballpark that I'm playing in today. Yeah, that's why you're way smarter than me, because I started building out a single family portfolio before I got into the bigger stuff. So. Well, fantastic conversation. We will link that group in the show notes when we produce this show. But I want to switch us now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our yep. first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's giving you a paradigm shift? My favorite book probably has nothing. No, not probably has nothing to do with real estate. My favorite book is 
I Know Why a Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, Rest in Peace. That was kind of the first book that I recall reading from cover to cover. I dabbled and kind of read a few pages of lots of books, but that was the first book that had really had an impact on me that I read cover to cover. On the real estate side, and I have it on my shelf, but I would say the best ever apartment syndication book is probably the most relevant to what I do and, and has probably been one of the best book resources that I've had. And so I would use that one. First person to say a Maya Angelou book, perhaps. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you do every day? I've not really worked out since college days, which is many years behind me now. But one of the things that I do do, because just like dieting, I think I think dieting is really a waste of time. Like if you're not going to adapt your lifestyle, doing kind of a binge diet, you're doing it for three months and then you can't sustain it because it's just not a realistic lifestyle. That's just not doing anyone any favors. So similarly, that's my approach to working out. So I try and do calisthenics of some sort or another every day, either in the morning or at the night before I go to bed. So if I haven't done it in the morning, I'm trying to do it before I go to bed. And so, you know, simple things like the old fashioned push-ups, sit-ups, just getting on the floor and just doing something. So even if I don't make it to a gym or I don't get out to run, fortunately, I was able to run this morning. I ran my four miles. But if I don't get to do that, I know at a minimum, I'm going to push out, crunch out some sit-ups, push out some sit-ups and get that in. So that's a daily thing for the most part. I love it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Control the things that you can control and do not stress the things that you cannot control. I love it. I had a coach one time said, control everything you can control and manage everything else. Yeah. What are you most proud of in your life? Oh, that's easy. My children and what they've been able to accomplish in their short lives. Our goal is or should be to put our children in a position to outperform us. And whatever we were able to achieve, we should set them up so that make us embarrassed by you know how much of a slacker we were relative to what they're able to accomplish. So I have four children. The oldest is 23 last month. She's currently in, living in Cali, Colombia, teaching English, and she's there on a Fulbright. She graduated college last year in 21, doing some phenomenal things. We just sent off my younger daughter to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She just started there as a freshman. I've got two boys, great boys too, doing their own thing. So my kids and what they've done and and the impact that they will have on their community and their society. If I don't do anything worthwhile, I know that I can be proud of what they've done and what they're going to do going forward. Love it. Well, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? So there are a number of people I could pick. I'm going to pick Nelson Mandela because I think the way that the world is today We need some statesmen of the stature of people like Nelson Mandela, who, despite all that he went through, was such a a humanitarian that he could sit down with his enemies who try to do very bad things to him and reach some kind of compromise where others would think there's no way that you can find compromise. And so I think we're in such a divisive time. I'd love to sit down over ice cream, pick his brain and get his thoughts on what do you make of what's going on here? And so Nelson Mandela. That's funny. Sometimes get this question back and he's one of the people I named for the exact same reason. Somebody that had every reason to hate his enemies. And instead, after 20 years of suffering in a prison by himself, 
came out and not only extended a hand, but brought them into the fold to say, we've got to lead this country together. So absolutely, fantastic answer. Well, Clive, amazing conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you or learn more about you, where's the best place we could point them? Yeah, so I'm active on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, what have you. But the best way to get a hold of me is via my website, which we launched a few months back. I'm very proud of it. So parkroyalcapital.com. And I'm sure you'll put that in the show notes. But if you go to my website, you have an opportunity to learn more about what I'm doing, some of the recent deals I've worked on. And you also have the opportunity to book a call via Zoom or a regular call with me. I I love talking about real estate in case you you couldn't tell. So I'm always talking to people, regardless of where you are in your journey, I'm always willing and happy to share kind of my journey and uh, hopefully be a resource to someone who, again, is in some phase of, of that journey. Perfect. Well, Clive, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. It's been a good conversation. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.